Well, good afternoon. In case we haven't met, my name is Dave. I'm the campus pastor at our Pewaukee campus, and I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service. Now, for those of you that were here or at our Pewaukee campus last Sunday, you learned a few things from Garrett. Uh, one of them is you learned some new dance moves. And I, I want to rest assured that you are not learning any new dance moves today. I'll just make that clear. Hey, if you have family or friends that weren't able to be here today for this service, we're going to take the entire service and we're having it aired this, after, or this evening at 7 p.m. Just go to riverglenlive.cc and they can see, hear the music and hear our message and everything that will be involved. So I encourage you to do that. And I really encourage you to join us either here in Waukesha or at our Pewaukee location. Or if you're traveling online, join us for our Easter services. Our team has been planning for many, many weeks to really celebrate and have a very, very impactful day for you. The word good. The word good is a pretty fascinating word to me. Now, it can be a noun, it can be a, an adverb, it can be an adjective. And if you use it as an adjective, it, it describes the word that follows after it, like in a, a good basketball shot. According to Merriam-Webster, the word good has a lot of different definitions, favorable, satisfactory, profitable, advantageous, wholesome, even pleasant. There's a lot of things that we can call good, like a, a good night's sleep, like I tried to get last night, good grades, good news from the doctor, good luck, or a good puppy. Now, aren't you glad you came today and you got a little bit of a grammar lesson? But Good Friday? Good? What is good about Good Friday? Now, one day when my daughter, Tori, was about four or five years old, she asked, why did they call today Good Friday? So Sharon and I, in our very best parent, five-year-old language, tried to explain to her what happened on Good Friday. And you could see her cute little face. It started out as all this interest and curiosity. And after we talked a while, it turned into confusion and eventually just stunned disbelief. She said, Daddy, Daddy, that's not good. It should be called Bad Friday. And I know it's pretty hard to argue with the logic of a five-year-old. So how can we call this day good? What's good about the day when our Lord and Savior was betrayed, beaten, mocked, and crucified? If you think about the objects, the symbols that tell the story of what happened that day, the nails, the hammer, the crown of thorns, a scourge or a whip called a cat of nine tails, a Roman cross, a soldier's spear, a sponge soaked in vinegar, none of these things are good. And the part they played in the Good Friday story is not good. But as horrible and as cruel as these symbols are, sometimes it's easier to focus our attention on these objects than it is to look deep into the darkness that lies within the hearts of the people that were surrounding our Good Friday story. Now, the story of Jesus' arrest, his trial, torture, and crucifixion, that story is full of lots and lots of villains. Now, I can get pretty amped up when I think about the cruel, inhumane, unjust treatment of Jesus. How dare they? How could they? Why would they do this? 
Am I the only one that feels that way? How about you? Are you angered by the betrayal of Jesus, the hypocrisy of it all, and the cowardly actions of so many people? Let's take a look today, a closer look at some of the villains of the story. That day, one was revealed to be the betrayer. Now, after spending countless hours in the presence of Jesus, how could Judas Iscariot betray him? How could he turn Jesus over to the mob gathered at the Mount of Olives? Now, Judas, he had the chance to walk with Jesus and the other disciples for three years. He served as the treasurer for the group. He heard every single word of Jesus' teachings. He saw Jesus perform miracles, restoring sight to the blind, healing the crippled and the lame, bringing the dead back to life. But for some reason, for some reason, Judas went to those who feared and despised Jesus, asking, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? So they counted off for him 30 silver coins. Judas sells out his friend, his teacher, for 30 pieces of silver. Listen to Matthew's account of this exchange. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now, a kiss was a traditional greeting in those days. A disciple would greet his teacher with the kiss on the, the cheek or the beard. It was a way of showing honor and submission. To make matters even worse, Judas addresses Jesus as rabbi. Rabbi was a word that meant, it was a title of great respect, meaning teacher or master. How sad, how incredibly ironic that Judas would use words and actions intended to give great honor, but instead to use those to betray. I wonder as Judas led that armed crowd to the place where Jesus was praying, what was he thinking? How did he justify his own behavior? How did he have the courage to look Jesus in the eye, kiss him on the cheek, call him rabbi? What did Jesus done to warrant this bitter betrayal? Quite, hence, quite simply, the answer is nothing. Listen to how Jesus responded. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Friend. I wonder if that word just hung in the air as Judas watched the angry mob bind Jesus and lead him away. Well, eventually... Judas regrets his actions. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. But it's too late. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas was the betrayer, and there was no way to fix it. Now that day, another was revealed to be the hypocrite. Now, is there anything more demoralizing than dealing face-to-face with a hypocrite? 
Weren't the religious leaders of Jesus' day, weren't they supposed to be the role models, the, the good examples of moral living? The teachers of the law, the elders, the Jewish high priests, they were supposed to be the respected ones. Being chosen as the high priest, that was the greatest honor in all of Israel. For centuries, the high priest played a very important role in the relationship between God and his people. The Jewish high priest, they were actually chosen to be the, the intermediary, the, the go-between for all relationships between God and his people. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, Caiaphas, Caiaphas the high priest, stopped representing God, and he started playing God. When Jesus is brought before the high priest to be tried, Caiaphas has no interest in the truth. He shows no regard for what is right. Caiaphas has only one thing, one thing only in mind, and that is to get rid of Jesus. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Caiaphas advises that Jesus be put to death. Why? Why sentence Jesus, an innocent man, to death? Did Jesus intimidate Caiaphas? Did he see him as a, as a threat to his power? Finally, Caiaphas said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The hypocrite Caiaphas has heard enough as he cries out, He has spoken blasphemy. The teachers of the law... The elders, they declare Jesus guilty. He is worthy of death, they answered. They seized Jesus. They blindfold him. They spit on him. They beat him with their fists. Caiaphas, the high priest, the one who's supposed to represent God, stands by and looks on as God is assaulted. This, to me, is the epitome of hypocrisy. The blood of an innocent man is spilled, but the hypocrite has no desire to fix it. Now, on that day, a third man was revealed to be the coward. Now, okay, this one's a little hard for me because the coward happens to be one of my, one of my heroes of the Bible. He was the outspoken one, the guy with the reckless temperament, Mr. Act First, Think Later. He was the rock upon which Jesus would later build his church. Yeah, I'm talking about Simon Peter. Peter did so many great things in service to Jesus. He was the most prominent, the most influential member of the 12 disciples during Jesus' ministry and the early church. Jesus saw great things in Simon Peter, but he also recognizes the flaws and the weaknesses in his character. Needless to say, the hours leading up to Jesus' arrest, torture, and crucifixion, these were not shining moments for Peter. Let's pick it up as Jesus and his disciples walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, 
I will never disown you. As the evening continues, Jesus asks Peter, James, and John to continue with him deeper into the garden. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Stay here and keep watch with me. They promise to do so, but they are weak and they are tired. They fall fast asleep, not once, but three times. Judas, the betrayer, he arrives with a crowd armed with swords and clubs. As Judas betrays Jesus with that kiss, Peter cannot contain his temper. He draws out his sword. He strikes the servant of the high priest, severing his right ear. Impetuous Peter. Act first, think later, Peter. Now, you can almost imagine in the scene Jesus sighing. Oh, Peter, put that thing away as he picks up the man's ear and heals him. I'm guessing that Peter took action in an attempt to protect Jesus, but Jesus rebukes that attempt. Jesus knows his own fate. He knows what lies ahead for him. I'm sure this was very confusing and exceptionally disheartening for Peter. Now, you might be thinking, Peter seems pretty brave, a little reckless, but brave, certainly not cowardly. Now, to his credit, Peter doesn't flee like some of the other disciples did. Instead, he follows Jesus at a safe distance as they arrive at the house of the high priest. When they arrive there, Peter kind of mingles in, mixes in with the crowd, sits down in the courtyard, warms himself by the fire. So far, pretty gutsy moves on the part of Peter. But here's where Peter's courage begins to fade. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, replied Peter. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he, he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight in the eyes of Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. In the face of fear, doubt, and adversity, Peter lost courage. He gave in to his fear. Peter was a coward. Peter knew his denial of Jesus. He knew it was weak. He knew it was wrong. But the coward didn't have the courage to fix it. The betrayer, the hypocrite, the coward... I'm indignant when I think about them. It makes me angry every time I think about them. What about you? How do you feel when your thoughts dwell on these three? How could they treat Jesus this way? How could Judas, how could Judas be so deceitful? How could Caiaphas be so hypocritical? And how could Peter, how could Peter be so weak and cowardly? This was so inhumane. It was wrong. Why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus have to die? But no matter how much I, I want to rant about the betrayer, the hypocrite, and the coward, I have to acknowledge a very hard truth. 
The truth is, I'm guilty too. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm part of that darkness of that story. See, the truth is, I am the betrayer. Despite Jesus' great love for me, despite all the ways that he has blessed me, despite all the times I've seen his goodness, I still betray him. I turn my back on him when it's not convenient to follow him. There are times I take his love, I take his friendship for granted, and I'm sorry, but there are times I've sold out for things far less valuable than 30 pieces of silver. I'm also the hypocrite. Despite all the wisdom that he's given me, despite knowing his perfect will for my life, despite my commitment to follow him, I'm often a hypocrite. I'll say one thing with my words, and I'll do something totally different with my actions. I've been judgmental and critical of others only to turn around and do the same things that I've criticized. And yes, I am the coward. Despite Jesus' love of justice, his call for mercy, there are so many times that I'm afraid and I fail to act. I fail to do the right things in the face of adversity. I'm a coward. I know the right thing to do, and yet I still don't do it. I ignore those who are suffering, and I'm silent in the face of injustice. I am the betrayer. I am the hypocrite. And I am the coward. And if we're honest, we all need to acknowledge the truth that we have sinned. There are times that we have all been the betrayer, the hypocrite, and the coward. Paul says it best. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the reality about sin. For the wages of sin is death. We are the ones who deserve to die. We are the ones that should have been condemned. Jesus died on that cross for our sin. And there's no way we could fix it. But there was one who could fix it. One who is faithful. One who is true. One who is strong. Because of his great love for us, he had the courage, he had the desire, and he had a way to make things right. So on this awful day, this day we remember as Good Friday, Jesus was handed over to be crucified. Now I have a video that will appear on the screens in a moment. It's hard to watch. It's graphic. Pilate soldiers made a crown of thorns to mock Jesus. They jammed it down into his scalp and forehead. They stripped Jesus of his clothing, bound him, and flogged him. With every blow, the scourge tore deep into Jesus' flesh. By the time he was led off to be crucified, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was forced to carry his own cross, weighing over 100 pounds, through the streets of Jerusalem over rough terrain, a distance longer than five football fields. It's no wonder he fell under the weight of it many times. Finally, they climbed to the place of the skull, Golgotha. There on the top of that hill, they nailed Jesus to the cross, driving large spikes through his hands and feet, and hoisted him up against the darkening sky. 
And there, with outstretched arms of love, Jesus gave his life for the betrayer, the hypocrites, and the cowards. He gave his life for you and for me. So how can we call this day good? One reason and one reason alone. Because Jesus is good. On this day, he took the blame for our failures. Yeah, Jesus is good. On this day, he bore the punishment for our wrongs. Jesus is good. On this day, we were forgiven. Jesus is good. Then on the cross, as he breathed his last breath, he declared, it is finished. With those very simple and very profound words, Jesus turned defeat into victory. Yes, Jesus is good.